We're in a series in the book of Matthew, or Malachi, which is right before Matthew. It's the last book in the Old Testament. So if you could find yourself to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi 2, verse 10 through 16. And it's helpful if you have it there open before you as we look at it together, both in the reading of the Word and the preaching of the Word. Malachi chapter 2, beginning with verse 10, going down to verse 16. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created, created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and, and, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the, but he no longer regards the offerings or accepts them with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their, in their seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who hates and, divorce, who hates and divorces, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. You may be seated and let's take a moment to reflect together on God's word. You have your Bibles open there to Malachi chapter 2 verse 10. Uh, unfortunately, um, most of you aren't old enough to remember a movie from 1994. Sad as that is for me to say out loud, I can remove, remember movies from that far back. This is not one you wouldn't, would want it to have remembered, however. Four Weddings and a Funeral. And the tagline for the movie, sort of the subtitle for the movie was, Love Means Never Having to Say I Do. Love means what, how love is really defined is never having to say I do, meaning, meaning it's possible, maybe even preferable that a, a couple could stay together without making any kind of formal commitment. Because real love, if you find real love, then the, the emotions and the connection of those two people are going to be strong enough that you don't need a covenant ceremony of any kind. You don't need a ceremony where people say, I do, because you found the real thing, so you never really have to say, I do. Now, maybe that makes a good Hollywood tagline, but that's definitely not true. The current feelings of real love don't ensure everlasting faithfulness. 
time and circumstance have a way of eroding away feelings, and sometimes they actually erode away faithfulness as well. And this is the kind of erosion that's taken place in Malachi's congregation. We've talked about this now for a few weeks, that they've been asked to, to, to follow after God, to, to wait patiently for him. They've been called out of the exile where they've been for at least 70 or more years, and they're now coming back into the promised land. They're gathered together in Jerusalem. They're sort of reconstituting themselves in a, as a nation, and they've seen all the penalty for their sin, and they, they've sort of come back in saying, okay, we have this fresh start. We have this fresh wind. And God says, yes, now, if you could just wait on me because I'm on my way, the Messiah, the, 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 the true God is coming. And while he's, he's lining things up, you as a congregation, you stay faithful. And so they went in with a lot of energy. But what happened? Well, God didn't come as quickly as they thought. And in the meanwhile, God wasn't acting in a way that they thought was what they thought would be best. And so as they stood there, time and circumstance began to erode their faith. The, 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 the waiting caused an erosion of their feelings. And when their feelings began to drift away, so their faithfulness was washed out to shore as well. You can notice here in just these few verses, the, the key word of the passage is faithless. We can ver- look with me. Verse 10. Why then we are we faithless to one another? Verse 11. Judah has be- been faithless. Verse 14. Uh, because the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been Faithless, verse 15. Guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Verse 16. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. If if a word appears five times in seven verses, that's the key word. Just for, you know, if you're not a biblical scholar, you can know that right away. And so that's what uh, Malachi in this sermon, he's like our visiting preacher for these several weeks. He's coming in and he wants to really drill down on the faithlessness of the people in the congregation. And we saw it as it began in chapter one, verse one through five. It began by these people questioning God's love. The, The faithless people began to look at God, who is always faithful and say, do you really love us? That's how it began. And then it uh, continued to erode in chapter one, verse six through chapter two, verse nine. This this erosion of feelings for God was followed by an erosion of worship to God. So once I lost my feelings for God, then when I came to church on Sunday, I just I didn't have the same kind of energy. I didn't have the same kind of passion. I was all in in the beginning. But as I my feelings sort of drifted away So did my faithfulness drift away. And when I was coming in the beginning, I was giving my best to God. But then when my faith, my my, my faith began to erode, I just sort of gave what was in my garage to God. Instead of giving what was best, I was giving what was blemished. And now here is sort of the third step. Their vertical faithlessness to God spreads out horizontally. This is a pretty common pattern. 
I first have these feelings. I promise I'm going to be faithful. And then I lose my feelings and my faith begins to erode. And when my faith begins to erode vertically with God, all the other commitments I've made horizontally begin to have an erosion as well. Their heart disease with God was pumped out into the rest of their lives. Their, their faithfulness or faithlessness had a domino effect. It, it caused an erosion of commitment in other relationships, especially marriage relationships. So let's look and just see how Malachi attacks this faithlessness. We see in verse 10, he says, Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Then why are we faithless to one another? We're profaning the covenant of our fathers. See, he's saying you're all part of the family. Now, for the last 20 years, the Phillips household has been a pretty steady household. It's all right, right here in the second row. And so, really, for 20 years, really, we didn't have a whole lot of drama in the Phillips family. I think it was probably normal, maybe even below normal. But on occasion, as our kids grew up, World War III would break out. And usually it broke out in like the back seat, right? He's taking up the armrest and he's got more of his, you know, real critical information pieces that are happening. And there was a battle or there was a battle in the backyard of some kind. And it really didn't matter what had happened and who was at fault. And they both had their share. Nancy and I usually had the same repetitive comment. We would come out and we'd sort of try to decipher what had happened. And then if, it, if Zachary's at fault or Morgan's at fault, we would say, why did you do that to her? Why did you do that to him? He's your, he's your family. I mean, it's not like we were grown-up kids to, to act terrible to everyone else and just to good to the family. But, I mean, there was a specific emphasis that... You, you can't treat your brother this way. He's, he's part of the family. You can't treat your sister this way. They're part of the family. And that's what Malachi is saying. He's saying, I'm looking at you as a family. And, and this is one big family. And because your, your vertical relationship with God had begun to erode, then the commitments that you'd made to one another, you didn't hold on to those either. They begin to erode. And especially the married couples in their congregation begin to fall apart. And so that's what Malachi is first saying. He's first saying, you all have one God. You're all saying you're part of this one family. And what's true for Malachi's congregation is true for ours. When, when you become a Christian, yes, you have a new vertical relationship with God. But you also have, you're also connected horizontally to the people that are around you. When you come together, when we come together on Sunday mornings, we're not just here to work on our vertical relationship. That is a primary emphasis, but there's also very important second emphasis is we're also working on our horizontal relationships. You can't just come and say, well, I'm just sitting here and just getting this part straight. And then I sort of leave, get a donut and hit the hit the you know parking lot. That's not what God is saying. He says, once you're connected to me, then you're automatically connected to the other people that are around you. So if you could just look around you and say, hey, you're part of my family. That might kind of give you a little shock, like, oh, gosh. 
But, but if you're a member of Christ's community church, if you're a member of the church of Christ, then, then this is your family. When, when you've made a commitment to Christ, you've made a commitment to these other people. Hebrews 10, 24, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let's not forsake giving meeting together. Give, let's not let's forsake giving meeting together, but, but let us continue to encourage each other as we see the day approaching. So the general principle here for all relationships is that this congregation, we are family. I'll resist breaking out into the Sister Sledge song that says the same. I think you get the idea. And so once Malachi sort of establishes that platform that we're a family, then he wants to dive into two specific places having to do with marriage relationships that are a particular problem. And before we look at those, let's just remind ourselves why marriage is such a particularly of interest to God. First, Marriage between one man and and one woman was the first human institution created by God in Genesis chapter 2. So the first uh, horizontal relationship that got created by God in chapter 2 was a relationship between one man and one woman. And he brought them together and he was the father that brings brings the bride to the groom. And he's the witness over this covenant ceremony. And that's what the Bible defines as marriage. Now, the culture wants to redefine it. But if you're a Christian, you're defining marriage as this union between one man and one woman. Second, marriage is one of the primary images God uses to communicate his love for us and our love back to him. So we're not really all that bright, I hate to say. And so God just constantly brings up these one illustration after another. I'm like a shepherd and you're like a a sheep. I'm like the husband who loves his church, who he calls the bride. And so if you want to know what my relationship with you should be like, it should be like a marriage relationship. Jeremiah chapter two, verse two. I remember the devotion of your youth. God is saying to Israel, how as a bride you loved me. See, we were together. And later on, Jeremiah comes around to say to for God, but you have you've been unfaithful. You're cheating on me. I'm the groom. You're the bride. And now you're cheating on me. In Ephesians chapter five, Paul writes, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So so Christian marriages, specifically how husbands love their wives, is designed to show uh, family members and really the rest of the world how Christ loves you. If a child would ever say, I wonder how God loves me. What does that look like? He should be able to or she should be able to just say, I can look at my dad. Christ loves me like my dad loves my wife or loves his wife. So marriage is extremely important to God. It might be before we get into these two particular points for married men here to pause and just consider that for a moment. You're a visual display to the world and to your family. 
When people don't know what it's like to know the love of God, they should be able to look at you and the way you love your wife and say, it's a lot like that. And so, no matter what happens, are you committed to remaining married? Are you laying down your life for her life? If your child wonders what the love of Christ looks like and they look at you, what do they see? Well, the two, two specific problems here that Malachi is addressing. One is mixed marriages. You see it in verse 11 and verse 12. Judah has been faithless. And an abomination has been committed. Judah has profaned the sanctuary. And he, she, the, Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord because they're marrying daughters of a foreign god. This, this idea of mixed marriages or even multiple marriages had been like this plague for Israel. They're constantly get, the men specifically constantly getting involved with women who are serving other gods. Or maybe multiple women. And we see that maybe the, the easiest place to see this is in 1 Kings 11 with Solomon. And it says this, King Solomon loved many foreign women. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your heart after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them and his wives led him astray and his wives turned his heart after other gods. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord. See, see, King Solomon lost his vertical faithfulness to God. And once he lost that vertical faithfulness, he began to lose his faithfulness or his commitment to uh, other people. And he began to marry women who served other gods. And the consequences were disastrous. First Kings eleven eleven. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude. That's, that's really what God's trying to work on right here. Since this is your attitude. In other words, Solomon, you know what is right, but you're just not going to do it. Since that's your attitude, you've, you've not kept my covenant, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you. And so after Solomon, the kingdom of Israel is divided in two, and all the leaders follow in Solomon's lead, and then it's really obliterated in some way because they're attacked from the north by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and they're led, led off into exile. So Solomon planted a seed because he was the leader. And he planted this seed that it, it really doesn't matter what you do. God's not really paying attention. He doesn't really care about your horizontal relationships. And when he planted that seed, it grew out like a heart disease to the limbs. <clears throat> and then the whole country had a problem. 600 years later, in Malachi's day, after Solomon, the people are coming back now from this exile, and they're coming back to Judah. And what are they doing? <laughs> the same thing. I just want to say, you're doing the same thing. You, you knew what happened because of it. You have this perfect example of why you wouldn't want to go that way. And as soon as they get back together, they start doing the same thing. The definition of insanity Doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different result. See, they're coming back in and they're, they're losing this 
this vertical connection. And because of it, they're starting to filter out and marry women who serve a different God. So let's let's be clear how we might apply Malachi's sermon to the Israelites, how it might apply to us today. Uh, Number one, when the Bible says God is against mixed marriages. It's making a statement about religion and not about race. Because you can be of a different race or be be a, a different ethnicity. But if you're a Christian, you're calling yourself a fam- you're part of this family that has one father. And so when God looks down, he just sees people who are part of his family. He doesn't see these different races or ethnicities. And so when when we're talking about a mixed marriage, we're talking about somebody who knows and loves God and follows after God and somebody who doesn't know and follow after God. So Christians must not deliberately enter into a marriage with a man or a woman of a different religion. That's what a mixed marriage is in the eyes of God. Paul says this very clearly in uh, 2 Corinthians 6. Do not be yoked. You know what that picture is? It's the the wooden bar that goes across two oxen and they're trying to walk together. And he's saying, don't you don't want to be yoked to somebody who's moving in a different direction because you're always going to have have this problem. Don't be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Satan? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? So he's he's saying the same thing Malachi is. is We don't want as Christians to be yoked together in a covenant marriage. Not in relationships, because we're always going to be out in the world. But in a marriage covenant relationship with an unbeliever. Number two, Paul is also clear that if you're in a mixed marriage, you should do everything you can to remain in that marriage. That was a question that was happening in the church of Corinth because Paul came in and some people met the Lord. And I meet the Lord, but my spouse doesn't. Then I say to myself, well, I'm supposed to disown my spouse. That was a question that was happening. He says, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer... And she is willing to live with him. He must not divorce her. If a woman has has a husband who's not a believer and he's willing to live with her, then she must not divorce him. So we're clearly just talking about two people who are in a relationship. And if they're unequally yoked, the Bible is clearly kind of come in to say to the believer, don't be yoked together with him or with her. Now, I realize there are some young people here. Maybe this, uh, I should have saved this sermon until the high school students got back on the, from their ski trip. But there are, are some young people here who may feel like, well, maybe marriage seems like a long way off. Or, you know, I'm kind of in dating, but I'm, I don't know, marriage, that's, you know, I'm, I'm only 18. I'm only 20. I'm not planning on doing that for a long time. And if that's maybe how you feel, I say you're in a great spot. You're in a great spot to decide right now that this is going to be your conviction. Before your heart goes out to somebody, you can say right now, I know clearly what the word of God says. This isn't one of those areas that you go, I don't know. Some people think this. No, everybody thinks one way. You're not supposed to be unequally yoked. 
And so you want to drive this conviction when your heart's not involved with anybody all the way down to say, no matter what happens, I'm going to stay faithful to God's word, even if it means having to relinquish or not chase after certain kinds of relationships. And I say it right now because so often I see young men and really much more frequently young women who develop a passion for someone prior to developing a conviction. So many young women develop a passion for somebody. Their heart leaves before they've really developed a conviction about what they're going to do. And once your heart is off and running, you're on pretty shaky ground. Uh, the combination of combination of being being liked mixed with the fear of never finding someone else produces a powerful cocktail. When you like somebody and and you really like that you get liked back, nobody dislikes that. And then you sort of get fearful. What if nobody else is going to like me? And that produces this powerful cocktail that you say, I can't not take a drink. And then you have this justifying gymnastics that began after that. And I see it all the time. Somebody comes to me and, hey, I'm dating this new guy. Great, great. Is he a Christian? Here's when you, you know you had a bad start. Your first word is, well... I mean, that's a yes or a no. That's not a well. Well, and then just these, you know, this this Olympic sport of, of, you know, justifying gymnastics begins. And I'm wrapping myself all the way around all these ways to maybe answer is no, he's really not following Christ. So you shouldn't be following him. I know that's hard on the heart, but it could save you a world, a lifetime of pain. Also, I would suggest that this conviction about who you should marry should extend to who you should date. I don't know if you've noticed, but 100% of the time, mates come from dates. I don't know if there's any, I don't think anybody's ever broken that streak, at least in our culture. You start out with going out with somebody at some point. And whatever you want to try to call it now, we're talking, we're, okay, whatever. But it starts somewhere, does it not? And 100% of the time when you marry someone, you can go back and say, it started right here. Now, you may say, I'm 16 and eh, it doesn't really matter. I'm 18 or I'm 22. I'm not going to get married until I'm 30. What? You may say, but you don't know. You don't know when your heart's going to leap out of your chest and never be able to get back in. You can't control that. And I would say if you start by making a spiritual compromise in this area, you will make compromises in other areas of your life. That will happen. If you can say, you know, it doesn't really matter on this one to God, then the next time a compromise comes up, it won't really matter either. And so you want to guard yourselves. You want to make sure you're guarding your heart. You're burying this conviction down down deep. Now, again, I can hear this because I've heard this many times. Somebody will say, well, but I've had success in Christian missionary dating. You know what that is. 
So I'm a Christian, I'm dating a non-Christian, and he or she is going to turn for the Lord because of my influence on them. And, of course, there are success stories. And they might say, Paul, isn't that great? And I would say, it's great. It's also stupid. All right, just because it has happened in that way, that doesn't mean that's the way it should be. We're grateful that God's grace can overrun all kinds of sin in our lives, are we not? But that doesn't mean we want to start chasing after sin, hoping God's grace can overrun it. Again, uh, how many times I've seen, especially young women, feel pressure. Pressure to date, pressure to marry. You know, in the Old Testament, it seems like more of the men are driving these problems. And I'm not exempting the men from problems here, but it seems like the pressure now is on the woman as she dating somebody. She got somebody that she can marry and... They begin to make compromises. And I've seen now somebody have 20 or 30 or 40 years of regret. And so what you think is not a big deal right now could be a very big deal in 40 years. Second aspect of marriage Malachi addresses, verses 13 through 16, is divorce. And I think it's helpful just to look at this and say, what, what can we say from this text about marriage? What does this text say about marriage? Number one, marriage is a covenant. Verse 14. She is your wife by covenant. You've made a commitment. You've said, I do. And, it, and when in the Hebrews or for the Israelites, the word covenant is a very weighty word. And, and it always has a visual picture with it. We say the word covenant and we just go, hmm. Paul uses that a lot. I mean, but, you, but when you say it to an Israelite, it's a picture comes to mind. And the picture is when you cut a covenant, you would take animals and you would cut the animal in two. And you take maybe three or four of these animals and you would lay them like on an aisle. And you would lay them in such a way that blood would run towards the center aisle. So you're making a covenant and then you would take the hand of the person you're making a covenant with and you would walk up and back down the aisle in this blood path. And you would be saying while you're walking down this blood path, this is what I promise to do, this is what I promise to do, this is what I promise to do. And if I don't do it, may it be to me as these animals are. May I be cut in half. So the first thing we recognize is that this is a pretty serious covenant. These are two people coming together and saying, if I'm not faithful to my side, may I be cut in half? May I, may I be torn apart? And so the first thing we learn about marriage is that it is a covenant. It's a commitment. Second thing, it, the commitment or the covenant has a witness. Look at verse 14. Because the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth. And notice the word Lord there probably is in all caps. That means Yahweh, his name. Because when you made a covenant, Paul, with Nancy, Yahweh was there. And he was a witness, even if no one else was around, he was a witness that you too made this covenant commitment. Number three, the covenant is between two people, and those two people, in a very unique way, become one. Verse 15. This is the, the leave and cleave 
message of Genesis chapter 2. Man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This physical union, this spiritual union, this emotional union takes place, and it always takes place after the covenant ceremony. This physical union doesn't, isn't by design, God's design, to be before the marriage ceremony. So you should not have sex outside of marriage. Number four, what we learn about marriage is marriage is the best environment for a godly offspring. That's the best way. God designed it to say, here's how, here's how children are going to grow up and know about me. Is they're going to be able to look at their parents. So let's just notice that uh, in verse 16, divorce completely disrupts this design. It's, it's like a violent act, he says. It is like a tearing things in two that you can't put back together. It's like tearing a piece of cloth and you could sew it back together, but you're always going to see the scars. It's not able to get back together if you've divorced in the way it was originally designed. So Malachi is talking to his congregation. He's not talking to, to the world. None of Malachi is for the people outside the church. All of Malachi is for people inside the church. And he's looking at the people, especially the men, and saying, you can't divorce your wife. You've got to be faithful to her 100% all the time till the very end. Amen? Let's see what happened. What are the, the statistics for divorce inside the church? I mean, same as outside. Now, it's important to remember when we think about this, that divorce is not an option. There are exceptions in the New Testament that our Jesus has given. But that's another sermon. Uh, but in Malachi's day, the, the primary problem is that people had gotten married and time had passed. And what happened when time had passed? Feelings eroded. And what happened when feelings eroded? Faithfulness eroded. And he's looking at those people and saying, even though your feelings have eroded, you've made a covenant commitment. You've said, I do. And then you see what happens um, in verse 13. They, they think God really doesn't care. And you see that, that what happens is they're, they're coming and they're, uh, they're in these mixed marriages. They're, they're in these places where they've divorced their wives. They have this bad attitude. And in verse 13, you basically hear that God says, you know what, you're bringing your, your weeping and wailing to the church. You're bringing offerings to the church and I'm no longer listening. In other words... They understood what was the right behavior in their marriage, but they weren't willing to do it. And so they wanted to live like however they wanted to live outside the church. But then when they came into church, whatever they asked God to do, they wanted to make sure he did it. And God says, I'm not hearing that. So it's a pretty tough conclusion when God says, I'm no longer listening. Let me make some concluding remarks, maybe some applications here. First of all, we would need to ask yourself, have, have you completely eliminated the word divorce from your language and your thinking? I want to say if you're not married and one day you might be married, your feelings will erode. 
I wish it wasn't true, but it happens. I'm sure Nancy's feelings don't ever erode for me. I'm just saying it can happen. It will happen. It'll be difficult. And at that point, what are you going to be? What, what is it going to be based on? It's going to be based on a commitment. You've made a commitment. You made a covenant commitment before the Lord. So if you eliminate a divorce from your thinking, number two, most of us know someone who's in a mixed marriage or who's been divorced. I would think all of us do. And I think you could hear this sermon and think something like this. I I guess it's just too late for me. I mean, I've made this mistake. It appears as if God's no longer listening. And so I'm I'm done. And to that understandable response, I would say um, Malachi's intention with all of these messages is not to bring condemnation, but to bring conviction so that people would turn and go a different way. He's coming in and saying, I'm pointing out the obvious and I would like for you to turn around and go a different way. And when you repent, when you come and say, I didn't realize it or I'm so sorry I went that way. I'm coming, God, not with a bad attitude. I'm coming with the right attitude and I'm turning towards you. What are you always going to get when you turn towards Jesus? Forgiveness. And so it's not too late. It's not too late. And I would add to that as a church, especially a church who really takes the Bible seriously, it's not too late to the person who's sitting in the congregation next to you. You and I can't afford to take some sins of some people and say, well, it's just too late for them. See, that's easy to do. It's easy to have sort of the Pharisee's heart and say, well, okay, you lied a little bit. That's okay. Huh, you got a divorce? Sorry. It's easy to sort of stack these things up in some way. And we've got to be people who say we can celebrate. It's not too late. It's not too late for anyone. It's not too late for me. It's not too late for you. Finally, it says here that we should guard ourselves. Verse 15 and 16. To guard yourself. How would you what's the best way to guard yourself? There are a lot of different answers to this, but I think the one that's most obvious in the text is you have to be a part of a family. You're part of a family. You got one father. This is the family. And what does the family do with Anthony and Shelley Thomas and June and Caroline and Luke now? We're going to surround the Thomases and, and, and guard yourselves. And the Hebrew means like a hedge of thorns. So we're going to be like a hedge of thorns around the Thomases, meaning if they try to get out, mm, ouch. If sin tries to get to them, ouch. We're going to try to help them stay together as a couple. We're going to try to help them stay together and present Christ to their children. And if they try to escape that, we can't absolutely help it. But we're going to do our best to put a hedge around them and say, I know you guys, you don't want to go that way. I'm going to make it difficult for you guys to get out. That's what they've asked. But if something tries to come towards them, I'm going to make it difficult for something to get to the Thomases. And that's what we've committed here today is we've committed to be a hedge around the Thomas family. They've asked us to be that hedge. So if they try to move out or something tries to move towards their family, we would be a guard to guard ourselves. 
Hollywood says love is never having to say I do. Christianity, I think, would say love is always having to say I do. You come in every day and you see the cross and what are you reminded of? And I know even if you've not been faithful, I do. Let's pray together. Lord, um, everybody here is very familiar with the message of Malachi. They come from a divorced home. They come from a, a broken home. They come from a home that's in a mixed marriage. They have, they've seen their friends. That, that it's just part of the DNA of our culture. And so I want to be sensitive to these people, but it's at the same time direct in there's a way to go. There's a plan. There's a purpose for the plan. And so I pray, I pray especially for those who are here that are, are not married, that they would say, they would bury this conviction that they're just not going to entertain giving their heart away to somebody who doesn't share their faith. And for those who are in uh, troublesome and trying marriages, maybe time and circumstances have eroded feelings that they would remain faithful. Lord, we ask for your help. We just plead for help in these areas. May we as a community be generous in forgiveness as you were with us. May we be a light to a dark world that's confused about what marriage is and what it isn't. Uh, Take our time, take our talents to be used for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.